The following content is explicit. It's Tuesday, October 31st, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. As the delightment over the indictment takes hold in liberal circles and countering prosecutorial action with distraction characterizes the strategy of the Trump camp, I've been surveying the rest of our government to see if they've been doing their job. You know, there are times when the government actually isn't dysfunctional. If you look hard enough, you have faith that our country will be delivered from destruction by competent people doing their jobs. Now, two of those competent people, Bob Corker and Jeff Flake, Republican senators, have announced that soon they will be giving up their jobs. Bummer. But in the meantime, they are two key members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. There, yesterday, talk turned to Donald Trump and the button. Not the one Mark Send attached to the blue bird of Twitter, the one that could launch a nuclear weapon. And Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts asked Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis, could President Trump launch a nuclear weapon without the approval of, well, anybody? I'll play the entire Q&A. Again, I'm coming back to this question of whether or not there is a scenario under which a first strike uh, using nuclear weapons could, in fact, be used by the um, president of the United States without consulting any member of the United States Congress, much less the entire Congress uh, in its entirety. <clears throat> Senator, again, it's a hypothetical. I think that if there was an imminent strike and it was the only way to stop it, uh, and I'm not saying that would happen, uh, there may be different tools, uh, conventional tools to stop it, but uh, he has a responsibility to protect the country. Now, Senator Markey has introduced a bill, along with Ted Lieu in the House, to prevent this. No nuclear strike unless the U.S. is attacked first. If the U.S. is attacked conventionally, Senator Markey reasons, the most powerful military in the world should respond conventionally. And if the U.S. is attacked by something other than nuclear, the U.S. should not attack with a nuclear weapon. Now, you heard Mattis's answer there, but he did concede that he could discuss these things further in private. And then committee chairman Bob Corker took him up on the offer. High time, it sounds like. We've met with CRS and understand that there hasn't been a hearing on this topic through them, that it could be incorrect, since the 1970s. And so uh, we do plan to have a hearing to, to walk through um, how the process works. Um, you know, there's multiple scenarios uh, that, that come into play, and I think a full hearing would be much better than, than a one-minute response. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. So there you go. We are discussing the highest levels of government, the reasons, good and maybe not so good, for the president to launch a nuclear weapon preemptively. I am glad this discussion is taking place. Serious, competent people are right. This is at least worthy of a conversation. On the show today, as far as those White House distraction techniques I mentioned, let us pay attention to the chief distraction. But first, on this Halloween, has a black cat crossed your path? Quick follow-up. Did the cat talk, wear a striped hat, create havoc that the fish wasn't into? Well, that's no ordinary cat, sir. That's the cat in the hat, and we'll focus on fur. He's white on the belly, but you already knew that. Today, we ask, was the cat in the hat black? Black. 
One fish, two fish, red fish, Jew fish. Okay, not quite. But the big question is this. Was the cat in the hat black? And the other question, or the subtitle is, The Hidden Racism of Children's Literature and the Need for Diverse Books. Now, the author of this book, Professor Philip Nell, came to my attention during a a brief contretemps between Melania Trump and the librarian in a Cambridge public school. She rejected the works of Dr. Seuss. She had a few things to say to the first lady. Among them, we're a rich school. Why not give these books to a poor school? She went on to say that Dr. Seuss is kind of cliched. And then she said, he's also racist. What? I said. And I found out that she was citing uh, prominently the works of Philip Nell. So I wanted to have him on to discuss this. Hello, Professor Nell. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. Geez, you've probably done a lot of interviews that started with this very question, but you put it on the cover. So was the cat in the hat black? The cat in the hat is racially complicated. He's influenced by blackface minstrelsy and also by an actual person of color. So that's why it's a question on the cover and not an answer on the cover. So then when the librarian said to Melania Trump, oh, and by the way, Dr. Seuss is racist, she goes too far, you think? She is correct. But he also did anti-racist work. Seuss did both. He did books like The Sneetches, in which the star-bellied Sneetches learn that the starless Sneetches should be treated equally. Or as Seuss says at the end of the book, no kind of Sneetches, the best on the beaches. Um, or there's Horton here, the Who, right? Where the Whos are discriminated against because of their size, which is an arbitrary mark of difference. And of course, we learn that a person's a person, no matter, no matter how small. How small. Yes. Um, so he does work like that, which is great. And then he also does work that recycles stereotypes, like If I Ran the Zoo, where Gerald McGrew travels the world to find animals for his zoo, and in doing so, encounters racial caricature. For example, he goes to the mountains of Zamba Matant with helpers who all wear their eyes at a slant. Uh, There's also the African island of Yurka, where the African characters are portrayed in a stereotypical way. And this is in the same decade that he's doing these books. This is all in the 50s. And the cat is kind of in between, you know? Cat in the Hat is racially complicated. Like a lot of cartoon characters, he's influenced by blackface minstrelsy. And, And Seuss is not odd for having that influence on his own work. So, so the librarian is, is not wrong, but it's also, there's also more to the question than whether Seuss reproduced racist images in his work. Right. He so did, I, so and I, he also challenged that. So, right. Yeah. Okay, so there's a bunch of stuff there, and I want to go over a lot of it. First of all, I think the uh, time period matters. Now, you didn't even say this, but earlier, when he was maybe in college or just out of college, he wrote cartoons that aren't even ambiguously racist. Yeah. Uh, There was work that was that you know used the n word and the caricature of yep. the broad caricature of Japanese. He was for internment of the Japanese. However, what about evaluating a person as a product of his time. At the time when he was doing films for the U.S. government about the Japanese, this was the policy of FDR. This wasn't out of step with uh, even, you know, a liberal thinking American. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's not really a question of convicting or excusing Seuss. Neither of those really makes a lot of sense for the the reasons that you say. Um, For me, it's more something that does harm to children and adults in the past does harm to children and adults in the past, irrespective of what we think about it now. These books continue to be read now. They continue to be circulating in the world right now and continue to do harm. So 
you can say, well, you know, X number of Americans in 1859 thought slavery was a great idea. Um, slavery is torture, you know. <laughs> the fact that people thought it was okay doesn't have any bearing on its cruelty. For, for me, it's more that just as today, people can participate in racism without meaning to. Because here's a guy who was actually trying to oppose racism and did in some of his cartoons and in some of his books. And yet at the same time, unwittingly, I think, is participating in it. There's a great uh, cartoon he did during the Second World War against racism. And there's a whole long line of people and they're standing up to be inoculated against racial prejudice. And that's this sort of uh, bellows-like contraption that goes in the person's ear at the front of the line. And out of his other ear comes the racial prejudice bug. And, and the caption is, what this country needs is a good mental insecticide. And I love the optimism of that, but it also totally misunderstands racism because racism is not a bug. It's a feature. It's not unusual. It's ordinary. And at the time he is writing that very cartoon, he's writing these horribly racist cartoons about people of Japanese descent. So, yeah, that's, that's what I would say. Um, a library is going to contact you. Maybe they have. Or this Cambridge librarian will say, Dr. Seuss was racist. A library, say, in a predominantly black school will say, we don't want to stock Dr. Seuss. Hey, you're the expert. What's your recommendation? Is your recommendation just going to be it's complicated? Like, uh, my board is tied. <laughs> Weigh in at, in your amicus brief. Yeah, I mean, m my recommendation is Horton Hears the Who, uh, is Green Eggs and Ham, is the Lorax, is the Sneetches. So not, um, so not Cat in the Hat. I, I would say the cat in the hat is more complicated. Um, he is a liberating figure in some ways. He rescues the children from their boredom. He defies the rules of the household. That's pretty cool. He's also, you know, a, a black intruder in a white home who shouldn't be there, and it's fundamentally different, and it's influenced by racial caricature. So I don't, I don't have a clear answer on that one. <laughs> I mean, I see what, you, what you're asking, right? All right, so mm -hmm. translate this analysis into policy. Some of the analysis is easily translatable into policy. Some of the analysis is not easily translatable into policy. My own feeling with books that trouble us is that we should teach them for the very reason that they trouble us and talk about why they trouble us with young people. However, I completely respect the decision of a library or a school district who says, look, you know, my students encounter enough, you know, either overtly or covertly racist work in their life already. I'm not sure that I want to continue that here. I, I respect that. Let's just talk about the uh, case for the cat in the hat being influenced by minstrelsy. For everything that a minstrel show was, which is caricature and blackface, at the time, and what Seuss might have been evoking, was that a minstrel show was, to some extent, just synonymous with entertainment. And if you were going to have a fun, chaotic, uh, non-rule-abiding character, maybe you could make the case that you would tap into that without at all trying to evoke any of the racial overtones. Well, yes except that the racial overtones are unavoidable. If you want to read the minstrel in a way that is, you know, more progressive and more disruptive, you could, and, and people have. I mean, an argument that you can make for minstrelsy is actually kind of radical, is that it shows race as a performance. I mean, that is literally a performance. There is nothing inherent or essential about race. Um, and, and that in, is of itself disruptive. On the other hand, 
one of the features of that performance is to perform race as if it is, you know, essentially different, essentially other. The, the minstrel character aspires to bourgeois uh, respectability with his bow tie and, and, and his garish hat and, and outfit, but is never really going to fit because he's, you know, essentially doesn't belong. So, and maybe this is where you and I differ, um, is that uh, I'm happy to embrace the complexity of this and not necessarily render a verdict on the cat in the hat as fully caricature or fully subversive or fully anything, but as an example of how race and racism circulates in children's culture in ways that we're not aware. I don't think we differ. I mean, I I read your book. I think that that's a reason why he's to be celebrated. I think he's also part of a lot of traditions of the trickster god, the monkey god, depending on your culture. In the Caribbean culture, Anansi, the spider god. Okay, that's Caribbean, but the Hopi have a backwards-talking god. No idea if Seuss knew any of this. Maybe you did. But there's a reason why human beings often get an anthropomorphized animal to to make a stage situation nuts, and it's clearly in that tradition. Oh, absolutely. I I would 100% endorse what you're saying there. Yeah, there's a long... Long history of of uh, tricksters in oral culture and in and uh, you know literate culture. So yeah, and he's clearly falls in that tradition. No argument. Okay, and the one thing we didn't, this is the title of the book, but most of the book is the need for diverse books, and I don't want to cut you off on that point. It is true, the statistics will show you that so many, uh, a disproportionate amount of protagonists are white. Uh, It's trailing, especially American culture. How does the question of the cat's, quote-unquote, race play into the diverse book argument? Well, it plays into the diverse book argument because it's a canonical children's text. Um, And so many of our canonical children's texts are by white writers and don't really think critically about race. 50% of school-age children are non-white, but in 2016, 22% of books published were focused on non-white characters, and only 13% of books published in 2016 were by non-white creators. We really do need diverse books. We We need books that reflect the children of this country and that show them that their stories are worth telling. Um, and we don't have that. And that's a real problem, um, not just for minority children, but for all children. Yeah, all children need to grow up encountering and valuing all types of people. Philip Nell is a professor at Kansas State University, and he is the author, among many other books, of Was the Cat in the Hat Black? Thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. President Donald Trump embodies a thought experiment I never thought would be asked. What if the office of the president were leveraged entirely in the service of distraction? What if the full power of the presidency were reorganized to become the most powerful smoke and fog machine mankind has ever seen? What would be the purpose of this? Well, we're seeing that right now. It might allow personal enrichment to go unpunished. It could allow legislative failures to go unremarked upon. The purpose of the presidency has heretofore been the enactment of an agenda. But this president certainly acts as if he is more focused on the pursuit of ego gratification. A policy of distraction would mean that the office of the presidency 
could invent fights and conflicts, which have nothing to do with policy, but could be gratifying to the occupant of the Oval Office if he feels he wins on any one issue. We sometimes think that the president might be distracting us to pull a fast one or to throw the scent off some idea that he wants to obscure. But what if the distraction is the goal and it was all along? It allows the president to get into arguments which makes him feel good. In fact, which makes him feel alive. Maybe that's why we're told the president is winning on all these issues. His defenders will say, well, look at the national anthem in the NFL. The president is winning. Or when he changed the conversation about racism to statues of Columbus, will they be removed? See, the president is shifting the ground to one he knows he could win on. The president is said to be winning even on issues where the public says it clearly disapproves. And luckily for the president, he has co-enablers in his distractions. I'm Chris Wallace. A year after the 2016 election, was it Hillary Clinton and the Democrats who colluded with the Russians? No, no, it wasn't. Okay, show's over. Everybody go home. We'll take the next 55 minutes off. Don't take the Danish. It's for the crew. What? What is your question? And then on another show, Tucker Carlson's, under the rubric Real Russian Scandal, Representative Dana Rohrbacher came on and said this. Why aren't we looking into Hillary where it's not, I mean, I think Paul Manafort is supposed to have uh, $18 million he's supposed to have some way evaded taxes on. Well, what about Hillary who got $150 million for the Clinton Foundation and Bill Clinton who got $500,000 in his pocket by these very same Russian oligarchs? And guess who was supposed to investigate that? Okay, guy's name is Mueller. $18 million if you evade taxes is a crime. Half a million dollars if you're paid to give a speech is not a crime. The Clinton Foundation is not Hillary Clinton. It is a foundation named for the Clintons. Those are some of the reasons. But Rohrbacher, Russia's best friend in the Republican caucus, went on to admit that there was a technique of distraction going on here. The only thing is, well, Here's his allegation. Now, the American people have to understand they're being, their attention is being diverted from the wrongdoing of the Clintons. Rohrbacher heads the subcommittee that has opened up an investigation into the Clintons and Uranium One, Uranium Gate. It is the dumbest scandal since gay juice boxes. So where to start? You know, that is the problem, where to start. As we debunk it, there are so many aspects to this dumb non-scandal that to demonstrate it's a non-scandal, it's really hard to be concise. It's, so, it's such a target-rich opportunity, you don't know which target to constantly aim at. And you know, if everyone who's done a fact check or looked into it cites a different reason that it's a dumb scandal, maybe fair-minded people trying to absorb this news won't get a singular unified message, won't get the impression that it's a dumb non-scandal. So for you guys, I will go through the parts of the scandal that make it a non-scandal. In a nutshell, I've gone through this before, but a nine-member board approved the sale of a Canadian company that owns mines in the U.S. to a Russian company. One spot on the board out of nine was the State Department, State Department at the time headed by Hillary Clinton, no evidence that she actually took part in this decision. Also approving of the decision, the Utah Nuclear State Regulatory Agency, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Agency, many, many, many entities approved of it. And why wouldn't they approve of it? A lot of Clinton defenders, or let's be fair, you don't even have to be a Clinton defender. You just have to be someone who's not an adherent to the dumbest non-scandal since Jade Helm. They're going to point to the process, what I just did. Look at all those people who approved it. 
It does seem like something that Hillary Clinton would do. Look, all we have to do is cite the duly competent oversight of the CFIS committee. No one's going to question that. That is a true point, but I guess it's not a good point. It doesn't cut through. And there are other pinatas of inaccuracy that the non-addle-brained will want to take a swing at. It's so tempting. Like, you keep hearing, this represents 20% of uranium production in the United States. No, it doesn't. Maybe that's the capacity or the potential. But the last year that they kept records for, 2014, these mines were producing 11% of the U.S. uranium supply. And on the Arms Control Wonk podcast, love that podcast, they look back at some recent years and said it was as low as 4%. Here's the thing. If you argue percentages, is that the sort of argument that gets through? I would go with this one. This is a dumb non-scandal because of everything we said regarding the quid part, but now let's focus on the pro-quo part. Look at the quo. Who cares if Russia gets U.S. uranium? Russia has the fourth highest levels of reserves in the world, over 500,000 metric tons. The U.S., on the other hand, is in 14th place. We have 63,000 metric tons. There's no reason why Russia needs U.S. uranium. Being worried about a Russian company taking U.S. uranium would be as if Russia were worried that a U.S. company bought their third largest corn dog producer. The U.S. does not need Russian corn dogs. Russia does not need U.S. uranium. And here's the topper. Russia didn't get any U.S. uranium. They can't access the U.S. uranium because the Russian company never had a license to export the uranium. So nothing happened and nothing could have happened. And everyone who's ever been any secretary of state in any administration would have approved this sale. But there I go, adding a cascade of reasons as to why this isn't a scandal. Just say, look, Russia has eight times the amount of uranium that the U.S. has. And they couldn't even get this particular U.S. uranium if they wanted to. And then ask the person, and by the way, what's uranium's atomic number? And if they don't say 92, you win. You get a corn dog. That's it for today's show that just was produced by Dan Schrader. He's not working on the cat in the hat being black. But if you want to talk about the othering of thing one and thing two, I think you have a case there. Mary Wilson, just producer, is turning her senior thesis into a book, Was Amelia Bedelia Yazidi? Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, asks, Brown Bear, Brown Bear, what do you see? The answer is, of course, nothing without a consciousness raising or a teaching. Come early, beverages will be made available and refreshments in the form of the removal of the Wasserman's garbage lids will be served. The gist. Okay, we joke, and I'm fine no matter what the answer is on this, but Snagglepuss, I mean, you know, he's Hispanic, right? No? Not seen it? Okay. Oomperu, depperu, dupru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>